Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. I'm your humble host, Shane Rosenthal. And on the last two episodes, we discussed a number of important details in the Gospels which serve to vindicate their claim that they are, in fact, first-century Palestinian texts. Again and again, whether we're talking about geography, name statistics, architectural details, customs, or even botanical information, the authors of the Gospels included hosts of little details in their narratives which we've been able to corroborate from other reliable sources concerning that time and place. In short, unlike the Gnostic Gospels, it can be clearly shown that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were in fact first-century documents written by those who were at the very least in contact with the early Jesus movement, and the claim that they contain eyewitness reports about the life of Jesus himself has been rendered extremely plausible. But what I'd like to do on this episode is to consider the alternative hypothesis. What if Jesus really was a fictional character who was invented by the gospel writers themselves? Sure, it could be argued they had accurate information about the names, places, and architectural details of first century Palestine because that's the period in which they lived and wrote their fictional story about Jesus. If you think that sounds far-fetched, I'd like you to listen to this clip from an episode of The Naked Archaeologist featuring Simka Jakobovich, which aired some years ago on the History Channel. All the stories we know about Jesus and his time come to us from the Gospels. Jesus healing the lepers, the miracle of loaves and fish, his Last Supper, and his miraculous resurrection. But all of these stories come to us from writers with a religious agenda. Is there any evidence outside the Gospels that confirms that Jesus actually existed? Only one. In the writings of a first-century historian named Flavius Josephus. And here's what he wrote. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds. He was a teacher of such people who accepted the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many Greeks. He was the Messiah. But as Steve Mason tells me, this passage is controversial. He almost certainly didn't write that passage. 
I'm confused. If Josephus didn't write it, who did? Annette Yoshiko Reed says it's the work of Christian scribes added years later. That seems to be a later edition. It seems it's actually pretty clear that it is a later edition. And while the description of Jesus as the Messiah attributed to Josephus seems to be a forgery, the fact is that his writings and his writings alone are still the only validation of Jesus as a historical figure. So according to this view, the four Gospels were written by people with a religious agenda, and therefore they can't be trusted. And when you do end up setting them aside, you discover that the only other historian who validates Jesus' existence as a real person was Josephus. Apparently, however, the passage he wrote about Jesus is a complete forgery. The implications of this seems to be clear. The Gospels can't be trusted, and outside of them, we don't have any proof that Jesus really ever lived. So on this episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast, we'll take a deep dive into this hypothesis along with all of its constituent parts. Should we dismiss the Gospels because they were written by people with a religious agenda? Is it true that apart from the Gospels, Josephus is the only historian who validates Jesus' existence? Is it possible that Jesus never really lived? On that last point, I'd like you to listen once again to a clip from the agnostic New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman, which I aired a few weeks back as he was making the case before an atheist audience that Jesus really did exist. The reason for thinking Jesus exists is because he is abundantly attested in early sources. That's why. Early and independent sources indicate certainly that Jesus existed. One author that we know about knew Jesus' brother and knew Jesus' closest disciple, Peter. He's an eyewitness to both Jesus' closest disciple and his brother. So I think that atheists have done themselves a disservice by jumping on the bandwagon of mythicism. Frankly, it makes you look foolish to the outside world. Ehrman, the reason for having certainty about Jesus' existence is that he is abundantly attested in early independent sources. In fact, one of those reliable sources, he argued, knew Jesus' brother as well as his closest disciple, Peter. So who might Ehrman be thinking of there? Well, when I asked myself that question, it became clear to me that the source Ehrman referred to was none other than the Apostle Paul. In one event described in Acts 15, Paul appears with Peter and James, and he refers to these two men in numerous places throughout his writings, including the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 15, which contains the earliest Christian creed. And this is a very good reason to be skeptical of the claims made on the History Channel audio clip that I played. You see, outside the Gospels, it turns out that there are, in fact, many sources besides Josephus which validate Jesus as a historical person. And many of those sources were actually found in the New Testament itself. So even though Bart Ehrman is an agnostic, he still believes that Paul really did exist and that he wrote a number of texts in the first century that are still around today. And in those texts, which were written from the late 40s to the mid-60s, Paul mentions Jesus numerous times, along with the fact that he was crucified, buried, and that he rose again from the dead, a fact attested by numerous living eyewitnesses, which served to vindicate his claim that he was, in fact, 
Israel's promised Messiah. Now, according to people like Simka Jakobovich, the writers of the four Gospels can't be trusted since they were people with a religious agenda. We'll deal with this objection head-on later in the program, but for now, let's suppose for a minute that all the earliest Christians were not, in fact, spreading news, but were instead pushing a kind of propaganda. Can this explanation account for the incredible rise of the Jesus movement in the middle of the first century? Well, if the earliest Christians were guilty of spreading propaganda, we'd need to set aside not only the four Gospels, but all the writings of the New Testament, including the Book of Acts, the early Christian creed from 1 Corinthians 15, all the epistles of Paul and of James, Peter, John, Jude, and the rest. So let's assume for a moment that all these texts were written by people who'd already drunk the Kool-Aid, and that they were of no historical value whatsoever. In that case, we'd need to set aside many other early Christian texts that mention Jesus, such as the Didache, 1 Clement, Barnabas, the Epistles of Ignatius, and others. And yet, even if we went to this extreme, we still wouldn't be able to conclude that Josephus was the only historian who validates Jesus as a historical figure, because we'd still have to wrestle with the writings of Tacitus, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, as well as lines preserved by various Roman emperors, such as Claudius, Trajan, Hadrian, and Marcus Aurelius. So, on a host of different levels, it's completely inaccurate to suggest that outside the Gospels, Josephus is the only historian who confirms that Jesus really lived. Furthermore, it's also completely false to suggest that scholars dismiss everything that Josephus himself wrote about Jesus. First of all, there are actually two passages in the works of Josephus that refer to Jesus, and as it turns out, one of them isn't in dispute. What's bizarre is that Semka Jakobovich actually discussed this very fact on that same History Channel program. In two passages, Josephus seems to be referring to Jesus of Nazareth. I met with Professor Steve Mason to find out what exactly Josephus had to say about Jesus. Does he mention Jesus? That's a bit of a controversy. He talks about Jesus in two places. The most certain one is not when he's talking about Jesus, actually. He's talking about his brother James. And he says that he was executed. And he says he was the brother of the so-called Christos, the so-called Christ, Jesus. As I mentioned on a previous episode, the comments by Josephus about Jesus' brother James is actually quite revealing. First, it confirms what we know from various New Testament sources that James was, in fact, one of the leaders of the early Christian movement there in first century Jerusalem. But it also tells us something we didn't know, namely that in his leadership role, James was brought up on charges and executed sometime around 62 AD. Now, with regard to the claim that the longer passage about Jesus by Josephus was a forgery, it turns out that many, if not most, scholars reject this idea and instead argue that the passage had been interpolated or slightly modified at some point in the process of transmission. In fact, in 1971, a famous Jewish scholar by the name of Shlomo Pines discovered an Arabic manuscript of Josephus which contained the original untampered version of the passage about Jesus. Dr. Paul Meyer is a scholar who has translated and published his own edition of Josephus' writings, and I'd like you to listen to this clip in which he discusses the controversial passage about Jesus, along with the 1971 discovery by Shlomo Pines. In Antiquities Book 18, we have Josephus referring to Jesus. And we were told back in seminary days never to use it because it had been interpolated. An early Christian scribe, thinking to do God a favor, baptized the passage. And I agree, it had been interpolated, and you can just hear it for yourself. Now, this is written by a Jew who did not become a Christian. It goes like this. 
there was a man, if indeed we ought to call him only a man, who did many wonderful things among us. And when he was crucified, he rose again from the dead on the third day. He was the Messiah. And in other words, <laughs> hello, this man must have been a Christian if he wrote those words. So I think there must have been some tampering with the text. Okay, in 1971, a Hebrew University in Jerusalem scholar named Dr. Shlomo Pines discovered a manuscript of Josephus that was not interpolated at that point. Josephus is honest enough to say this. About this time, there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the nations of the Gentiles and the Jews followed him. When he was crucified by the governor Pontius Pilate, those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he came back to life three days later. Accordingly, he could possibly have been the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders, and the tribe of the Christians so named after him has not disappeared to the present day. Now that objectifies it. You notice the passage is cut out there, he was the Messiah. The passage is also reporting the resurrection the Sunday School Version says he rose from the dead. They reported that he appeared to them restored to life. You see the difference there? And this is why it rings with authenticity, and uh, that passage can now be used again, even though it had been somewhat ruined earlier. By the way, you can find a link to that full interview with Paul Meyer in the show notes, along with links to other relevant material referenced throughout this program. Well, thus far, we have seen evidence for propaganda, but it appears to be emanating not from the Gospels or other New Testament writers, but from the History Channel. This is an important point to consider. I have found that often in conversations with friends or family members, or even in scholarly debates, a person will attempt to dismiss the Gospels as biased works written by people with a religious agenda. But isn't it possible for biases to go in equal and opposite directions? Just as some may wish to accept the Gospels in blind faith, might not some wish to reject them in blind unbelief? Therefore, rather than simply allowing others to set aside the Gospels as biased works containing religious propaganda, I suggest that we respond with a question such as, Why do you make that claim? What in your reading of the Gospels has convinced you that these narratives should be dismissed as propaganda, as opposed to authentic accounts of what Jesus really said and did? Along these lines, I'd like you to think about the following analogy. Imagine you're a journalist doing a story on a hundred-year-old court case, and your editor instructs you to completely ignore the transcripts of the original trial, since all that information, he says, is biased. What do you mean by that, you ask? Well, you see, all the witnesses who spoke in the trial were either invited by the prosecution or the defense, which means that all of them came with an agenda. So I only want you to interact with material that was written some 50 to 60 years later by historians who summarized this famous case. Obviously, that would be an absurd way of investigating the story, and therefore, the point of my analogy is for us to admit that everyone involved in a given court case comes with a particular set of biases. But this doesn't mean that we should dismiss their testimony altogether. In that case, we wouldn't even be able to have civil and criminal trials. No, what we need to do is to take people's agendas and personal biases into consideration as we listen to and engage with their testimony. And this is precisely the approach we should take 
when it comes to evaluating the Gospels and the writings of the New Testament. So what I'd like to do for the remainder of this episode is to point out a few details that would be difficult to explain under the theory that Jesus really was a kind of fictional character invented by the earliest Christian community. One of the biggest challenges with this view is the fact that belief in Jesus' messianic mission appears to have mushroomed overnight in the middle part of the first century among both Jews and Gentiles. We actually know this from both Christian and non-Christian sources. For example, according to Acts 14, great numbers of Jews and Greeks in Iconium believed in Jesus, and this caused the people of the city to be divided. Iconium was a city that was located in what is now modern-day Turkey, and Paul's visit there took place sometime around 47 AD. According to the early part of Acts 17, some three years later, Paul arrives in the city of Thessalonica, and once again, many Jews and Greeks believe his message about Jesus, and many do not and the city was thrown into an uproar. As you make your way through the book of Acts, this sort of thing happens in city after city throughout Paul's missionary travels. And when he was later brought up on charges in Jerusalem around 57 AD, as recorded in Acts 24, he was described as one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world. Now, of course, all this is purported to have taken place within the first three decades after Christ's death in a chronicle written by a Christian. But do we have any corroborating evidence that shows this sort of thing actually occurred? As a matter of fact, we do. Shortly after Claudius became emperor in 41 AD, he mentioned various riots among the Jews in his letter to the Alexandrians, and also referred to the Jewish people as, quote, fomenters of what is a general plague infecting the whole world. Later in 49 AD, Claudius declared an edict in which he evicted the Jews from Rome due to, quote, the continual disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. Most scholars agree that the reference in this edict to Crestus was actually the Latin way of referring to Jesus, who in Greek was commonly referred to as Christus. In fact, to this day, the word Christian in French is chrétien and is spelled with an E. It's interesting to note that this edict of Claudius, which served to temporarily evict the Jews from Rome in 49 AD, also happens to be alluded to by Luke in Acts 18. This is the scene in which Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla, who had recently arrived in Corinth, because, quote, Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, end quote. Now, if this event occurred in 49 AD and Paul was in Corinth around this time, who then was responsible for causing the disturbances in the Jewish community there in Rome? Based on patristic evidence and other sources, I'm convinced that this was actually the result of Peter's ministry. Now, we know for certain that Paul wrote his letter to the Christians in Rome sometime by 56 or 57 AD before he had ever arrived there in person. In fact, he says in chapter 15 that he was often hindered from visiting the church in Rome, lest he be found, quote, building on someone else's foundation. Now, less than a decade later, around 64 AD, Christianity had actually grown to such an extent in the capital that it caught the attention of Nero. In his description of the persecution that took place in this period, the Roman historian Tacitus described Jesus as one who, quote, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilatus, and the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, but in the capital of Rome itself. In fact, he says at one point that an immense multitude of believers was discovered and later arrested, tortured, and killed in a variety of disturbing ways. This report of Tacitus concerning the persecution of believers in the city of Rome matches precisely what we find in a first-century Christian epistle known as First Clement. 
Discussing the martyrdom of both Peter and Paul, which took place between 64 and 67 AD, Clement writes, quote, To these men there was joined a vast multitude who suffered many torments and tortures. And then he adds this, We are in the same arena, and the same contest awaits us. Testimony of this kind from those who had converted to the Christian faith in the face of great opposition is of immense weight and significance. I find it remarkable that both Clement and Tacitus refer to the persecuted Christians in Rome around 64 AD as a vast or immense multitude, and this is merely a report of those who happen to be discovered and convicted. So what would cause such a vast multitude of both Jews and Gentiles in the city of Rome to believe that a recent victim of crucifixion was actually the Lord of heaven and earth, even in the face of incredible persecution? That vast multitude, of course, included Peter and Paul and many other residents of Rome who had originally lived in Judea. That's not speculation, since Paul refers to many such people by name in his farewell greeting at the end of his epistle to the Romans, some of whom he even referred to as his fellow prisoners. Also, we should note that it was a common feature of the Jewish culture of the period for Jews to travel to Jerusalem at least once a year for certain festivals. This is the point being made in Acts 2, which says that, in addition to the residents of Jerusalem, Jews from all over the world were present at the Feast of Pentecost, which included Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, along with many other territories, which also happened to include visitors from Rome. So let's think about this carefully. We know that the Gospels contain countless factual details about first-century Palestine that would be impossible for an outsider to fake, and this makes clear that these narratives were in fact written during the crucial eyewitness period. So if Jesus never really existed, but was just an invention of the Gospel writers who wished to become the founders of a new religion, then how are they able to attract such a large following during this period in which so many witnesses were still around who could refute their story? We know from the writings of Josephus that Jesus' brother James was a leader of the early Christian movement, and that he was executed in that role around 62 AD by the Jewish high priest. But Josephus went on in that passage to say that the residents of Jerusalem were so offended by his execution that they succeeded in having the high priest removed from office after only serving in that role for three months. This helps to corroborate the New Testament claim that in the decades that followed after Jesus' crucifixion, many people in Jerusalem continued to be sympathetic to Jesus and his movement. This is precisely what Luke tells us in Acts chapter 6, when he says that the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and that even a great many of the priests had become obedient to the faith. Describing the events that took place around 57 AD, Acts 21.20 tells us that many thousands of Jews in Jerusalem had become followers of Jesus. In fact, the word translated thousands in that verse is actually the word myriads, which is better rendered tens of thousands. So we know from both Christian and non-Christian sources that vast multitudes in Jerusalem, Rome, and many other cities of the Mediterranean world had become followers of Jesus. But how would this even be possible if Jesus had never really lived? Think for a moment about the language we find in the Gospels. According to Matthew 4, Jesus' fame spread throughout all Syria, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The word crowd actually occurs 144 times throughout the Gospels, and in 35 of those cases, it appears with adjectives such as great or large. Luke 12 describes a scene in which myriads of crowds gathered to see Jesus, which actually caused some people to be trampled. 
And in John chapter 12, the Pharisees say of Jesus, quote, Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, if Jesus never really existed, who would believe stories of this kind? Wouldn't it be patently obvious to the residents of Syria, Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region beyond the Jordan that the stories being told about Jesus were completely made up? I should note at this point that we don't actually have any records of anyone disputing Jesus' existence until sometime in the 1700s. Now, because of the devastation of the Jewish war that took place from 66 to 70 AD, we don't have a lot of surviving first-century Jewish texts. However, the earliest records we do have indicate that the basic factual claims of Christianity were never in dispute. In Justin's Dialogue with Trypho the Jew, written in the mid-2nd century, we discovered that those who did remain traditional Jews ended up rejecting Jesus as a kind of magician and deceiver. And according to the oral teaching preserved in the Jewish Talmud, Jesus was dismissed as a heretic because he, quote, practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. This is precisely what we find in the gospel accounts. For example, in Matthew chapter 12, some Jewish authorities say of Jesus, quote, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that Jesus casts out demons. Now, if Jesus never really existed, you would expect to find some later Jews making that claim, which no doubt would have been passed down to them by their forefathers. But instead, what we do find is later Jewish communities repeating precisely what we find recorded in the New Testament Gospels, namely that Jesus really did exist, that he really performed wonders, but that he did so by means of demonic sorcery. After my first reading of the Gospels and other New Testament documents, I personally began to wonder why the Jewish people didn't believe in Jesus. One rabbi that I spoke with argued that it was because the Jews of all people knew what to expect with the coming Messiah, and when it came to Jesus, they collectively said, he's not the right guy. But according to the text we've been looking at from both Christian and non-Christian sources, it's clear that vast multitudes of Jews did end up becoming followers of Jesus in the first century, and this movement was so vast that it ended up attracting myriads of Gentile converts as well. Then over time, partly as a result of the new covenant which allowed Jews and Gentiles to fellowship and dine with one another, those of Jewish descent in the early Christian movement also began to intermarry with Gentiles, and within a few centuries, Christianity had essentially become an international movement and no longer had an ethnically Jewish core. So those who are ethnically Jewish today are essentially the descendants of those who didn't end up embracing Jesus as the promised Messiah. But as we've seen, many first-century Jews did believe. Along these lines, I'd like you to listen to this short clip from Daniel Boyarin, who is professor of Talmud at the University of Berkeley. You know, a lot of times Christian friends ask me, why didn't the Jews believe in Jesus Christ? I said, well, who do you think did believe in him? The Chinese, the Navajo? Obviously, the people who accepted him were Jews. And why didn't all the Jews accept him or believe him? Well, if you know Jews, you know it's impossible to imagine all the Jews agreeing on anything at any time. I began this episode with an audio clip from Simka Jakobovich, who claimed on one of his History Channel programs that outside the Gospels, Josephus was the only person who ended up validating Jesus' existence. As he argued, that passage in Josephus also happened to be a forgery. And because the Gospels were written by people with a religious agenda, they couldn't be trusted. But as we've seen on this episode, that way of telling the story simply isn't consistent with the facts. 
Apart from Josephus, there are numerous texts outside the Gospels that refer to Jesus. We have the book of Acts, the writings of Paul, Peter, John, Jude, and all the other New Testament documents. We also have many other early Christian texts, such as the Didache, 1 Clement, and Barnabas, as well as a collection of epistles from an early Christian martyr by the name of Ignatius. In fact, just before his martyrdom, Ignatius wrote in his epistle to the Trallians that, quote, Jesus was really born. He ate and drank and was really persecuted by Pontius Pilate. He was really crucified and died. He also really rose again from the dead. But if, as some atheists say, he only appeared to suffer, then why am I in chains? In vain, then, do I die. My testimony is but a lie. Outside the Christian world, we also find references to Jesus in the writings of Tacitus, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, and we also find him mentioned by numerous Roman emperors. Furthermore, as we discovered, there are actually two passages about Jesus in the writings of Josephus, one of which isn't disputed. Finally, we also considered the alternative hypothesis. If Jesus never really existed, then how and why did so many people come to believe that he did? Why didn't any of the first century Jews check to see whether Jesus had, in fact, fulfilled various Old Testament prophecies as they were required to do in the book of Deuteronomy? Why would anyone find the message of a crucified Messiah appealing, unless it was ultimately grounded in reality? And why would such a vast multitude of individuals be willing to suffer persecution, torture, and even martyrdom for this crucified Messiah, whom no one bothered to investigate? Under these circumstances, the rise of the early Jesus movement throughout the Mediterranean world just doesn't make any sense. Therefore, what we need to do is to take all facts into consideration, rather than ruling some facts out of court from the get-go. Did the Gospel writers have their own agendas as they told the story of Jesus? Of course they did. They wanted to make converts and spread the word. If you happen to find that sort of thing distasteful, it might be due to the fact that this doesn't line up with your agenda. But why should that be grounds for dismissal? If you only end up listening to people you agree with, there's a strong likelihood that you'll be trapped in a prison of your own making. The easiest thing to believe, after all, is that which you want to believe. This is the very heart and root of what is commonly known as confirmation bias. But since everyone can't be right about everything, some people just have to be wrong. And this, of course, includes you and me. The best way to escape the prison of our own making is to be both humble and skeptical, not merely of the ideas of others, but of our own views as well. You see, those who dismiss people with agendas different from their own without even giving them a hearing, are the true dogmatists. They know the world so well that they don't have to weigh the evidence of those with opposing points of view. In this respect, blind faith and blind unbelief are actually quite similar. In each of these cases, a person either believes or refuses to believe in something or someone without any reference to evidential considerations. Well, folks, on this program, I've been exploring the Jesus of history. And if you're already a Christian, I hope this episode has helped to strengthen your faith. If you're not a Christian, I hope my presentation inspires you to begin reading and investigating the Gospels for yourself and to thoughtfully consider their claims. If you'd like to take a deeper dive into the subject, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode, as I'll be including links to additional interviews that I've conducted on this topic, as well as related articles and other resources. Folks, The Humble Skeptic is a listener-supported podcast, and I'm very thankful to those of you who've subscribed to the show via Substack or who have put something in the tip jar. If you're so inclined, you can find the appropriate links in the show notes for both those options. 
I can also use your help promoting the show, so please share episodes with friends and family. And if you haven't already, consider leaving a positive review via the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll see you next time on the Humble Skeptic Podcast as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if one ought to call him a man. He was the Messiah. Surprisingly, this is the only reference of Jesus outside the New Testament. What?